Welcome back to the Resurrection Church Podcast. This is week 49 of our Every Day with Jesus Bible reading plan. This year, we have been reading through the Bible in a year following this plan, and we are coming to the end of this plan. Uh, We only have a few weeks left, and this recording is the 48th week. So I am here by myself this week. Again, unfortunately, sickness all around, schedules crazy, but I wanted to make sure that we're getting an episode for each week of our journey through the Bible, even if it is a little bit shorter and certainly of lower quality than it would be if Matthew and AJ were with me. Uh, But hopefully this will still prove helpful as you continue to wrap up your Bible reading through the year. I am getting to this a little bit later than I had hoped to, but it was my first week back preaching in a while. I also had Bible class. We had our monthly family discussion forum. So it was just a really, really busy weekend. So I I just didn't get around to it. But it's Tuesday, good start to the week, and um, hoping, hoping to fit this in and get it uploaded before the week is out so that it can help anyone reading along with us. Well, we finished up Ezekiel this week, and we read through the book of Daniel. So we've been going through Ezekiel for what seems like a really, really long time. Uh, Probably not as long as it took us to get through Jeremiah, but Ezekiel is a pretty long book as well. So we wrapped that up And of course, it ends with this vision of the temple and a restoration of God's people and God's presence with his people. Uh, The book ends with this really encouraging note. The name of the city from that day on will be the Lord is there. And of course, that's the whole point of the land, the whole point of the tabernacle early in Israel's history, and the whole point of the temple is that the Lord would be there. Now, um, I think I mentioned in the last episode that I don't know quite what to do with all of the measurements that are laid out here, uh, but I, I think regardless of how we would look at that or the particular details, what we have to do is recognize the city's purpose. And the purpose of the the city is for God's presence to dwell there. That's the purpose of the temple as well. And as we get into the New Testament, Jesus indicates that the temple and the city are not going to have all of the confines of the previous temple and city of Jerusalem. Instead, there's an embodiment of the city and temple, so much so that Jesus himself is the temple. He's got, and what's more, he makes his people the temple. So he creates a people, the church, to be a dwelling place for God's spirit. Um, So whatever we make of all of the details in this text, we can certainly look forward to Christ dwelling among his people once again. And of course, as we think about the Gospels, John's Gospel in particular, we read about the Word that became flesh and dwelt among us, where uh, God is there, but was rejected. And now we await Christ's return, and we prepare the way for Him by our witness to the blood of the Lamb, uh, by our testimony of Christ. And so we now 
in many ways, especially in the Lord's Supper, anticipate the day when we'll be able to say that the Lord is here. When we get into Daniel, there are a few stories in Daniel that pretty much everybody that I know is familiar with. I think a lot of Christians are familiar with Daniel and his friends in the fiery furnace, Daniel in the lion's den. And then we've probably all heard about really long and uh, complicated sermon series talking about how Daniel depicts everything that's going to happen in the end times. So there's this weird matrix when we come to the book of Daniel of the familiar and the complex or mysterious. And um, I want to focus on the familiar and maybe make a couple comments on the complex. Of course, in these stories about Daniel, Daniel's pictured as God's man. Uh, He's pictured as a righteous individual and Israel loves Daniel. That That's sort of the second temple period where there are all of these non-canonical writings that spring up. There are multiple writings that are about Daniel that kind of imagine his childhood or his past um, or uh, how he came to be the, the great prophet of the Lord that he is in this book. So the book of Susanna envisions a young Daniel who... Um, overturns the ruling of some evil judges in Israel and saves the life of a woman and shows his wisdom from the Lord. And then there's another story called Bell in the Dragon, I believe. Uh, these idols in Daniel represents righteous Israel once again. But here in Daniel, we have Daniel in captivity in Babylon, showing himself faithful along with his friends. And if you were with us during our Esther series, I contrasted Esther's way of being outside of the land with Daniel's way of being outside of the land. So where Daniel is really attentive to following the kosher food regulations and even going beyond it to ensure that they're kept, Esther just dives right into the king's meal. Um, Where Daniel and his friend maintain ritual purity, she does not. And they're both outside of the land in these instances. So as we read the Bible as a whole and we read these books in light of each other, we start to understand that Esther's mode of operating is not really faithful. And Daniel is depicted here as an individual who lives faithfully before the Lord along with his friends. Um, These guys are... Uh, selected. They refuse to violate their kosher food laws, uh, but the Lord blesses them because of their faithfulness. So they grow. Um, God gives them knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. And then Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. And no one was found equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. These, these individuals are blessed by God because they remain faithful outside of the land. And if you think of Jeremiah's t- instruction in his prophecies and his preaching, he kept telling the Israelites, you're going to be taken away. Don't resist captivity. Instead, be faithful to God while you're there. And Daniel and his friends embody that faithfulness. They, re- they remain faithful to the Lord. Of course, it's important to note that Daniel can interpret dreams because in the next chapter, in chapter two, this king, Nebuchadnezzar, has a dream and nobody else can interpret it except for Daniel. And Daniel interprets it um, referencing the God of heaven 
asking for mercy considering the mysteries. So God reveals the the interpretation of the dream, and Daniel praises God in response in 2.20 through 23. So it's interesting that we start to get this picture not only of a wise and faithful individual, but a humble individual who recognizes God's authority over dreams and his ability to impart abilities to others. So Daniel directs all attention and glory and praise to the Lord, which is a significant contrast to Nebuchadnezzar and others in the story who are trying to draw attention and glory to themselves. So Daniel models what it looks like to show humility before the Lord and give glory to him. This, of course, relates to the the interpretation of the dream, where uh, Daniel indicates that if Nebuchadnezzar fails to worship God, then he's going to be crushed. He's He needs to um, submit himself to the Lord. Of course, Daniel gets promoted at this. And then by chapter 3, this guy Nebuchadnezzar makes a golden statue, and everybody is supposed to worship it. Um, and of course, Daniel is not going to worship it. Um, and then these advisors, some of these people who are jealous of Daniel and others who have been elevated above them, uh, maliciously accuse the Jews and they turn Nebuchadnezzar against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these guys are thrown into a fiery furnace. Uh, and they they respond to this threat. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. So if Israel um, is supposed to learn anything from their exile, they're supposed to learn not to worship false gods. And Nebuchadnezzar is... Um, hearing this message as these three individuals take that lesson to heart as they refuse to worship the false gods. Um, So they throw these three guys into the fire anyway. And then as the king is looking in the fire, he jumps up in alarm because he sees a fourth guy in the fire. And this one looks like a son of the gods. And this is a really interesting phrase. Um, It's hard to know how to translate this phrase or connote the ideas associated with it. Um, It could simply mean a divine being. Often kings were referred to as a son of the God. So this is probably an angelic-like figure, really intimidating, somewhat royal figure maybe. I think I always grew up um, assuming that it was Jesus in the fiery furnace with them. I don't know that we have enough evidence to say that this is a Christophany. So a Christophany is a term that people use for a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ in the same way that we'll use the term theophany to talk about an appearance of God in some kind of physical form. I, I don't know that we should say that this is a Christophany or a theophany. Nebuchadnezzar, when he sees this guy, um, praises the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he says that he sent his angel, um, this divine being, to rescue them from the fire. I, I don't know if we should 
rely on Nebuchadnezzar's interpretation of the situation or identification of this guy, but uh, Dan, it's recorded this way in Daniel, so probably we should just say this is an angel of the Lord, maybe the angel of the Lord that's sometimes associated with God's very presence. But Nebuchadnezzar gets it here. He says that um, they risk their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Um, I think it's important to note that Nebuchadnezzar sees himself as a god, and um, he is realizing now that these individuals who didn't worship him as a god were correct. Um, And then he goes, maybe in a pagan way, to show this by issuing a decree that if any people, nation, or language who says anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they should be torn limb from limb and his house made a garbage dump. For there is no other God who is able to deliver like this. And then the king rewards these guys. Um, it, it is interesting that this is not quite the response that I think Nebuchadnezzar should have. I think instead he's supposed to have a response of repentance. Instead, he now wants to get in on the good side of this God and is going to rip from limb to limb anyone who says anything negative about their God. Of course, for all the faults of his declaration there, he does confess that um, God their God is the most high God, and he praises him in a psalm-like way in Daniel 4.3. How great are his miracles and how mighty his workers. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. And in the upcoming week, uh, this this will uh, be the same thing that sounded when Mary responds with a psalm-like praise to the blessing of Elizabeth as she is bearing Christ, whose dominion is from generation to generation, and whose kingdom, uh, of whose kingdom there will be no end. So he recounts the way that Daniel interpreted his dreams, um, and he recounts another dream. Daniel uh, is stunned when he hears it. He tells um, what tells him what the dream means and provides a way forward. Um, But the problem is that all of the negative things that uh, Daniel warned about happen. Um, He tells this guy, unless you humble yourself, you are going to be like an animal. And um, while the words are still in the king's mouth, when, when he's talking about how great his kingdom is and how vast his power is and how majestic his glory is, while these words are still in his mouth, um, the kingdom is departed from him um, until he will acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms and that he gives them to anyone he wants. And this guy goes insane. Um, he's driven away from people. He eats grass like cattle. He's living outside. His hair grows long and gnarly. Um, But then at the end of those days, when his sanity returned to him, he glorified God and confessed that his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. Um, Now it seems that he truly repents. Well, it seems then that um, a different king 
is introduced here. And it gets a little bit confusing because the the um, Gentile name that Daniel is given is Belteshazzar. Um, and then there's this guy, King Belshazzar. So we have these two names that sound kind of similar. And there's not a super clear indication that there's a change in ruler at this time. But this other guy, King Belshazzar, hosts this huge feast to show off his power and glory. Um, they're drinking wine. And while they're drinking wine, this guy has his servants bring out some gold wine cups, some gold vessels that were taken from the temple in Jerusalem. And they're drinking this wine and they're praising their false gods um, while they're using these temple instruments. And while this is happening, and, and I don't know the best way to try to uh, talk about how profane that would be, but it would almost be, maybe the closest thing we could imagine is if uh, we were taking the Lord's Supper at church and while we're participating in it, someone is taking, you know, about to drink from the cup and shouts out praise to some false god and then consumes it. Well, well, that would be antithetical to everything that is going on there. It would profane the moment Um Maybe that kind of comes close to what, what happens here. But while they're doing that, um, these fingers appear and begin writing on the plaster of the wall next to the nap, uh, lampstand. <clears throat> and this king watches this happen. He turns pale, and he was so terrified that he soiled himself and his knees knocked together. So this is a terrifying situation for him. But nobody can understand the words that are written there. So, of course, people remember that Daniel is able to interpret dreams. He's wiser than anyone else. So he is called to reveal the meaning of these words. So Daniel speaks to the king, and once again, he um, praises the Lord God. And here he even rebukes Belshazzar. He, he rebukes him because he hasn't worshiped God. And he points back to Nebuchadnezzar, who also failed in this way. Um, Belshazzar should have learned from that. But Daniel rebukes him, you have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all of this. Instead, you exalted yourself against the Lord of heavens. You have not glorified God who holds your life breath in his hand and who controls the whole course of your life. So then he reveals the meaning of the inscriptions. And pretty much it's just that the days of your kingdom are numbered. Um, you've been weighed on the balance and found deficient. And uh, your kingdom will be divided between the Medes and the Persians. And of course, Belshazzar rewards Daniel in this royal apparel and issues a proclamation that he should be the third ruler um, in the kingdom. Uh, but that very night, Belshazzar is killed by uh, by Darius, we think anyway, and this guy at the age of 62 takes the kingdom. And now there are more plots against Daniel, this guy who's been elevated above all others. And uh, these advisors convince Darius to sign a decree that nobody can pray to anyone else. Um, and, and if they do, then they need to be thrown into the lion's den. And King Darius signed this decree. When Daniel learned about it, he ignored it completely. <clears throat> he went upstairs, prayed towards Jerusalem, as he always did. 
And of course, he's thrown into the lion's den uh, regardless, even though Darius is pictured as wishing that he had not signed the decree, kind of regretting that he had done that. So at the first light the next day, Darius runs down and he calls out to see if Daniel's God has rescued him from the lions. And of course, God did. God rescued him from the lions. The king was overjoyed, had orders for Daniel to be helped out of the lion's den, and he was unharmed because he trusted in God. And just like uh, Nebuchadnezzar, this guy responds not so much immediately with repentance, but with violence, as he then looks at the guys who convinced him to do this, and he has them and their children and their wives thrown into the den of lions, and the, the lions react immediately and crush these individuals. It's really a gruesome scene. Uh, but he then responds with this decree that in all his royal dominion, people must tremble in fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed and his dominion has no end. He rescues and delivers. He performs signs and wonders in heavens and on the earth, for he has rescued Daniel from the power of lion. So then Daniel prospers uh, during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. And then we get into some of these visions of the the ancient of days, the son of man, of these kingdoms that are all um, brought under the authority of God's kingdom. And these prophecies have been interpreted in various ways. And, and I think I just want to make two comments about them. The first comment that I want to make is that we have to remember that these prophecies were made to real people and they were received in a particular particular way. And before we try to speculate about how they might relate to our future, we should try to understand how they relate to their present. Um, So as we work through Daniel, we should keep in mind that these uh, these are words that were received by real people in the past, and we should work to understand the author's communicative intent, even as we recognize they might have uh, some future implications. And then second, I think sometimes as we try to work out all of the details here, we can lose sight of the main theme of these visions, which is also the main themes of the narratives that come before them, which is God is the ultimate king. He has authority over all dominions, and he's working to bring about the son of man. He's working to bring about his messianic king, who will be the king of kings and lord of lords. And we, of course, know that that's Jesus. And I think it's fitting as we read the gospel accounts that over and over again, there's this recognition of Jesus as the king who now declares his kingdom that usurps and supplants all other kingdoms, not through the violence of uh, Darius or Nebuchadnezzar, but through uh, the violence that Christ took on himself that he bore for us on our behalf. And um, for the in, in the way that his kingdom comes about is through the witness, the testimony of his followers and his own blood. Um, So we've talked about that a good amount in our Bible class as of late, Uh, but Daniel points to the fact that God is king and he exercises his rule through the true Israel, Jesus Christ, who's um, the son of David and king of the world.
Moving on now to the New Testament reading, we have 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Of course, 1st John is a letter that is loved by many, uh, really, in some ways, clear and easy to understand, but in other ways, really deep and um, even debated among individuals on what it means and how to understand it. There's a lot of debate about how 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John relate to each other. I think one convincing argument I heard from a lady named Karen Jobes is that 1st and 2nd, or 1st John is like this circular letter, and then 2nd John and 3rd John are cover letters that go with it to a couple specific places. I think that's what her argument was. I don't know that it's all that important, um, but there is some debate about that. I taught through 1 John during the COVID shutdown, or at least most of it. And then I think um, we may have been meeting in person and we shifted that study to a Friday Bible study that's not recorded. But I think the first um, five or six or something like that are on the church website. So if you're interested in some of those texts in more detail, uh, it's not exhaustive teaching. I think they're like 20 minutes per lesson. Um for whatever it was that we were trying to do during that COVID shutdown. Back in uh, 2020 as well, I did a Johannine theology or Johannine letters. Uh, I forget what it was called. Johannine literature class, um, a PhD seminar. And I did a presentation on John's letters. And I kind of just considered the three letters together Um, identifying key theological themes. And the main themes I examined were spiritual authority, eternal life, sin and atonement, remaining in Christ, and then love for God and love for others. So uh, there are many, many important themes in John's letters that we should attend to, but those may be some of the most prominent when you, you consider those three letters together as a whole. Of course, the most dominant theme is love, God's love for us that is demonstrated in Jesus Christ, and then the call to love one another as Christ loves us. Um, And then there's also warnings about loving the wrong thing. So you're not supposed to love the world or the things in the world. Instead, you're supposed to love God and his people in the world and to demonstrate love in imitation of Christ who demonstrated God's love to us. I think if there's any um, primary theme, it's got to be that theme of love because it works itself out in so many ways. Um, even in the way that we work through fear, love plays an important part because Christians have to come to understand that as children of God who are loved, um, that perfect love drives out fear uh, because fear involves punishment. And those who love God are not going to receive punishment from him. Um And then that frees us from exercising punishment on one another. So there's a freedom from the captivity of fear that comes through not only understanding that we are loved, but participating in that love as well. I really, really appreciate 1 John in particular, and I could probably go on talking about it at length. 
there was a summer that I worked at Northland Camp, this camp in Dunbar, Wisconsin, and every year there would be a main passage for the summer. In one year, it was from First John, and in that book was a really, really helpful for me. And then I ended up doing a Bible study with some guys while I was at Eden through First John. I did some uh, teaching for the teens through First John. I think actually AJ Molnick subbed in for me one, one time when I was gone for that one. Um, and then spent a lot of time studying First John. In fact, I, I originally thought that I would do doctoral work in First John and ended up going a different route. But this letter has so much packed into it in Second and Third John as well, really reinforce the message of First John. Uh, so if you're if you're interested in going deeper there, I'd be happy to send you some uh things that I've written on first John, um, some things that other people have written on first, second and third John, that would be helpful. Um, and then of course you could find those recordings of those shorter teachings through most of the book, or at least most of the themes in the book on our church website. I want to remind you of our upcoming Christmas event called Lord of the Rings and the Hope of Christmas. This event takes place on December 16th. That's a Friday at our church, Resurrection Church. We are looking forward to a good time where we will have some trivia, uh, uh, some prizes for trivia, and a prize drawing. And some of those prizes have already started to come in the mail. So I'm getting excited about being able to give those out. And I'm getting excited about the talk that I'll give on the hope of Christmas that's depicted in The Lord of the Rings. Uh, I'm not sure everything that I'm going to say there, but I've been studying it for sometime and I'm, I'm getting ready to start writing this week. So if you think of it, you can pray for me as I prepare for that talk. Uh, but then I'd encourage you to invite a friend or two or a neighbor. Uh, you can send them the Eventbrite link or the Facebook post, or if you'd like a flyer, we can get you one of those as well. But, but we would just love for people to be able to come and think about Christmas within the context of something that many of us enjoy, which is the Lord of the Rings. Finally, as I've noted in past podcast episodes, we are nearing the end of our Bible reading plan, and we are not going to do this weekly Bible reading plan next year, but I do think we'll have weekly or nearly weekly podcast episodes in the coming year. We plan to interview some interesting and thoughtful people about theology and the Bible and church ministry, and I plan to do some talking through Romans and maybe even like a verbal commentary through the Lord of the Rings saga. I'm not sure yet about that one. And then... Uh, we plan to have a couple group discussions about some points of doctrine and theology that might be helpful to reflect on. And, uh, and we want to include in there also some topics of just the Christian life and daily living and spiritual theology. So I hope that you'll continue to join us on the Resurrection Church podcast, which is a ministry of Resurrection Church here in Burnsville, Minnesota. You can learn more on our website at resurrectionmn.org.